2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Philip Junfang. Today, we'll be talking to Claudio Benzicri about his new book, The Perfect Fit, Craved Work in the Global Shoe Industry. Claudio, good to see you, and thanks for coming on the show.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
2: So before we start the conversation, let me introduce you to our listeners very quickly. Um, Claudio Benzicri is a professor of communication studies and sociology at Northwestern University. He's also the co-editing chief of the Quarterly of Sociology, one of my favorite journals. Um, And he's also a former chair of the theory section of ASA. But many of you probably know Claudio from his first book, The Opera Fanatic: Ethnography of an Obsession. It is a fantastic book that challenges Pierre Bourdieu and won many awards, including the 2012 Mary Douglas Award for Best Book in Sociological Culture. Today, we're so excited to talk about Claudio's new book, The Perfect Fit, It's based on five-year ethnographic research on fashion, creativity, and globalization. The book follows to how Xiu is imagined, sketched, uh, designed, developed, and produced in between the U.S., Europe, Brazil, and China. So, Claudio, let me start by asking you, why shoes? Right? You were known as someone studying opera in Argentina. You know, it's high cultural. So, why did you make the transition from um, studying uh, high cultural to studying uh, cultural object as humble as a shoe?
3: Um, thank you for um, for the introduction and thank you for this question to begin. So, you know, I think there's like two answers. One is more. Related to sort of research agenda, and is the fact that I try to think of these questions in a more encompassing way. That is sort of like the question when is it that something becomes an object, and when is it that something becomes a subject, right? And so, in the case of opera fans, what I got to see was that, you know, the work of fans to become very actively like passive receptives of, hmm. you know, like the that thing that they really enjoy, which was uh, opera. And so opera was the subject in that situation, you know, more than the people consuming it, opera was, you know, like sort of the thing that had agentic power, if you wish. On the other hand, we choose, you know, like I was able to like keep some of the same questions in the sense in the opera book, I was interested in in how is it when you don't have something objective outside of you, what kind of claims can you make about what you like, what you know? And so with taste, you know, it's, that te- it's always a tension between something being private. It's my own taste. It's impossible to share. And then the fact that like all tastes are about public conversation on taste. Um, so that was one continuity the other one is I was interested in in understanding tacit knowledge in both places. And so, um, you know, studying embodiment, how is it that something that is in the body, informal, tacit, implicit, can be transferred. You know, in the opera house, I got to see that by seeing how opera fans talk to one another, the things that they did, how kind of they model themselves to become, you know, like this sort of both a uh, humble amateur and at the same time, somebody that had a lot of experience with it. And then with shoes, it was something interesting in the same way. I mean, the question became, how is it that something that, you know, works as a craft, which development and design of shoemaking work like that um, can be then formalized, disembodied, transfer, you know, like from New York where design happened uh, to China, Um, And then the the last one is, you know, like in that question of what's an object, what's a subject, is we tend as sociologists to look at categories of singularities, you know, sort of so-and-so is an artist, this is beautiful, this is unique, this is original. And, you know, and sociology has done a fantastic job in debunking those claims and saying, no, actually, this collective work, actually, this is magic, right? This is myth-making. But at the same time, these things are insanely productive in our everyday life. You know, like we, you know, work around those things. So to me, more interesting that debunking those uh, myths are sort of trying to think, you know, what kind of attachments they generate, what kind of investments, what kind of trajectories. And so, and again, you know, these are parallelisms that I made after I finished the second book. It's not like I pretended. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is I'm very curious about things that have relatively close to me and, and being in New York and, and because of people in my life, I I had some access to fashion and at first I was very interested in like issues not so much of development or of consumption but of originality you know again like how is it that even though everybody's copying each other at the end you end up with things that are signal pointed at as novel unique original etc so
2: so how does your study of a shoe you know, differ from the previous studies. I'm thinking about those studies in you know, a tradition of a Marxist analysis of the labor regimes or the kind of a global commodity chains, right? How is your study of a show a little bit different?
3: First off, uh, you know, I what I would like to say is like I'm not trying to go against those studies and say they're wrong, but I do feel like there's a an overemphasis in social sciences. Um, in thinking about the social world as only constituted on a dimension that, you know, of power. And so for me, like, you know, I always quote, uh, there's a like, famous sort of epigraph used by a lot of different scholars from the work of Walter Benjamin, the, you know, German philosopher of culture. and And he said, you know, like, we there's no document of culture that is not a document of barbarism at the same time. And in, by barbarism, he thought of like, you know, capitalism developing in sort of like the early, uh, like 20th century. Um, and I think, you know, like I, I think we we know a lot about the barbarism of production, but we know very little about the, the document of culture. And the reality is at this point, I don't think anybody you know, of course, of center culture capital and, and and certain networks of people around them do not think of or do not know actually of the exploitation that goes behind most of the consumption of objects that we do, you know, from our computers to our sneakers, to our jerseys, to our t-shirts, to our shirts, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, people keep buying them. And I think like a key part of that equation or, or of why that happens is like that they're made like relatively cheap and they're made beautiful you know like and and so i think that part of the process has not been observed and so when you think of commodities you know like you you know one of the things that you're looking at is that the process is of turning people into things but also of turning things into things that you cannot distinguish from one another right like the, you know, they're produced for exchange value, there's like mass character. But then all the the other part of things that we learn about shoes is like those stories of like what's unique, you know, what kind of quality, stories, exchanges can you get from them? But you only get that, you know, in something like sex and the city or in narratives of how high-end design happens. And I was like so much more interested in seeing how is it that actually added value is already included in commodity making, you know? How is it that added value is already there? And the other thing too from global commodity chain is that there was almost like a black box in the input, you know, like if you look at how they think of this, of, of these kind of like issues of production development, there's a, you know, something comes in, there's a black box, which is unclear. I mean, all we get is the organization in terms of the political economy of the chain, and then there's a finalized product. But other than what happens in the factories or the exploitation by expert managers, uh, we don't get to see much. And so I was sort of interested in, first, what's sort of the added value in design, since labor has a limit to how cheap you can make the shoes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, how these objects themselves are already made into, you know, like a fetish in the classic anthropological sense that people are able to appropriate and make it their own Um and attach themselves to a certain extent to it. Um, And so I was interested in that and also in the focus on design and development instead of the factory, which most of the studies of production have been at the factory level, um, means that you get to study the fact that shoes are, in terms of development and design, are produced as a craft. Uh, and but it's a craft that it doesn't happen in one place, right? And so that brings all kind of like uh, interesting issues for people like us to ask questions about how things travel. Do they become? Are they stable in those trips? How you reproduce? You know, what happens in China, in New York, and vice versa.
2: So before we dive into the rich and empirical details, which is an amazing part of the book, actually, but I want to, I want you to talk about your theoretical agenda a little bit more. So, in this book, you introduce two very important concepts uh, the craft of the global and in- an ecology of a taste. So, let's you know, unpack them one by one. Um, in the introduction, you wrote, and here a quote this book can also be read as an, an anatomy of a scale which reveals all the agents, processes, and forms of the labor that craft the global from the bottom up. In that sense, it is most certainly about how a global craft, shoemaking is the case. It's developed, but it's also about how the global itself is crafted. Differently put, it's not just about a global craft, but about the craft of the global. So what would you mean by it's not just about a global craft, but about the craft of global?
3: And as you know, in when you do projects like this, you go with like some theoretical ideas or some big orienting questions that they become, you know, sort of like refined, punctuated and like more define let's say Um, but one of the things that really jumped to the eye to me was this question of what kind of skills you need to have to be involved in this sort of like global you know design development production uh, kind of thing and and like I said before the fact that the craft wasn't you know like craft is usually defined right like with some hierarchical relationships that are respected, but on a place where you still have collaboration, it's about face-to-face. Usually it's about embodied, informal, tacit knowledge, right? It's it's relatively hard. It's, you know, all those classic things. But here what I had was, you know, like design, and again, in a very cutthroat way, because that's not like exactly how it happens. Design mostly happens in New York, right? Uh, development happens in China in consultation, production happens in China um, or sometimes in other places too. And that opens up, you know, like all these questions of how you maintain things at a distance, what kind of exchangers there are, what kind of trust issues there are, what kind of intimacies um, you need to generate. And so I was, I was curious of that. And, and also because it's kind of interesting if you, you know, we tend, in general, right? Like when you think of technology, we we idealize creation, right? Like this unique thing. But the reality is, like most of the things that are done. Uh, the STS literature, like the social, you know, like uh, technology studies literature, shows uh, that what you end up with is the fact that people that are uh, sort of taking care of re- repairing and maintaining are far more important than what we give them, you know, like space for, right? And so that was the other part of this. It's like, okay, what kind of things you need to know? What kind of friction, you know, there is. The fact that like there's always contingency, that things might go wrong. And I think, you know, COVID was a fantastic, you know, well, COVID wasn't fantastic. It was a fantastic laboratory to think of some of these questions because we were super used to, the scale of the global being taken for granted, right? Like you would like Amazon, I want this, I'm going to the corner and I'm getting, and then all of a sudden you have to like settle for lesser products, a brand that you didn't know, and delivery times that were 10 days instead of like tomorrow. And and so this is another way of thinking of that problem and of that issue that is like all the devices, techniques, routine, and people that make up the global as something that we talk about, but we never think of all the, you know, things that can go wrong if you wish. Right. Um, so that was like, um, you know, like my, my interest in, in thinking about and playing with these worlds, the fact that the global craft is, this like really hard to accomplish endeavor and, and that invites sort of a craft of the global, you know, like the ability to move between places, to learn You know, in limited ways, languages, but also styles of sociability. They are more cosmopolitan for everybody involved, in the general. And then the other part that was to me was interesting was that we tend to think of outsourcing. You know, and this isn't high-end production of shoes, but also it's not like the classic things that we tend to think when we think of creation, ideation. There's no like video games, auto software makers. There's nothing super intellectually, you know, defined from the get-go, but still, you know, and so the fantasy we tend to have is like everything is done in New York and they send a blueprint, you know, from the center to the periphery over there. There are a lot of like people with no knowledge and who are really poor and have to do it. And then it comes back and that's about it. Right. And, and, you know, what I ended up seeing is this world of small techniques, routines, standards that make possible what we actually Think of the global as this sort of seamless, continuous production of circulation of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that—that's what I was going for.
2: Yeah, I think in the um, preface you talk about a COVID, right? So only when the global infrastructure um, is kind of interrupted, we started to appreciate actually. You know, it takes a lot actually to put together the global, and then. Yeah make everything function and operate. So now I want to talk to, uh, to the, the second concept, an ecology of a taste. So if I must identify some continuity between your first book, The Opera phonetic, and this new book, I would say it's a common agenda of trying to advance the theory of a taste. My question is, you know, what is an ecology of a taste and what's new about this approach?
3: I would say, you know, going back to that question that, that we chatted at first, like this issue of like, what's an object, what's a subject, right? To me, and I remember my first talk that I gave on on this project was called, When is a Shoe a Shoe? I
2: remember <laughs> so, that.
3: So, you know, and it was like, again, if, if you look at the book now, first, there were some ideas I ended up developing with much more data, much many more field sites, Um but it was this question of under which conditions can something come to be differentiated, you know, as a particular kind of object, unique. And so, you know, like in the book, the shoe and in the research appear in different ways, right? They're used, they're dematerialized, rematerialized, they're classified, they're dequalified, right? Like there's all this operation going on until a thing becomes a thing, right? And, and in the book, there's that scene transcribed from the Devil Wears Prada, right, where where Meryl Streep lashes out uh, against uh, Anne Hathaway because, you know, they're I think they're discussing uh, like a particular item, and and Anne Hathaway says something like this stuff, you know, like in a very dismissive way, which is interesting, right, because. Hmm. Then Meryl Streep Banzer basically is about like the collective expert work of getting this item that she calls stuff to her. Right. And so the narrative is like the first collection was this collection from a high end brand, you know, like that made it to a runway two years ago. Then he made it to like a relatively cheaper market. And then he finally made it to the sales rack. at And I can't remember what was the, but, you know, probably like a Banana Republic or a GAP. Uh, so. Which is really interesting, right? Because it tells you that the least you care about fashion, the more actually all these experts are making decisions for you, which is something, you know, that we tend not to think about. And so I was interested in that. And also the question of, which I think is the other part of this ecological approach, which is what has to be in place for a shoe to be put together, right? Like the, or, you know, or a more question, how did everything get there? And so I got excited in trying to answer um, that creation at a global scale, you know? Uh, and, and the third part of the, of the ecology, and I think it comes from sort of a more classic Chicago school definition of, of the ecology. My question was like, okay, I've seen the work of designers and trend forecasters, And there's so many possibilities for what to produce, right? And design. Yet every year we tend to see like a stable, reduced sense of, you know, there's 35 objects for this season, these 20 objects for this season. And then when you look at the different companies, you're like, oh, they kind of have the same colors. They've chosen relatively close patterns. Um, And so I was sort of interested of what's the, the work of, of managing the excess, right? We tend, and again, that question of power tends to come with scarcity, right? We tend to do a lot mm-hmm. of sociology about what's unavailable, what's only for a few, but here you can just produce endless, you know. And, and the question is, how how do you get a hit, you know? And mm-hmm. so, for me, it was a, the ecology of taste had like this three dimension, right? One is sort of answering what has to be in place for something to be, you know, for a shoe to be a shoe, right? Mm. Then the second one was sort of the management of excess. And the third is, you know, yeah, people use the shoes, make them into fetishes, make them into something that they can attach to their identity. Uh, But at the same time, uh, you know, they do so with a relatively finite pattern number of, of styles. And so I was interested in trying to understand how those, um, you know like uh, came to be.
2: So can I understand that uh, one of the purposes for this kind of a, um, approach would be in the future people should not see something um, like a shoe very humble object it's like all about maybe in the in the movie. It's not just the stuff right. There's a lot of invisible work, a lot of expert knowledge um, behind the, 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 the thing we don't even care uh, in everyday life.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, like, so, you know, scholars of material culture do great exercises when it comes to that. But also, I think, like, what really caught my attention when doing field work, a lot of the access I had was because my angle was an exploitation and I was, like, really clear from the get-go, but actually mm-hmm. seeing, you know, how people do work. And, and so I cannot tell you how many people told me, oh, shoes are made by so many, many people, it's great that, you, that somebody can give an account of that. And so part of it was restoring in something as mundane as a shoe, you know, like the kind of relationships that are behind them. And, you know, and that's the other thing, too, that I think is interesting and it complements studies of power in a different way, which is we tend to think of outsourcing as this thing that happens like in a second, you know, like you can just do it whatever you want this minute, you know, it's going to happen, it's going to be okay, but the reality is that you need to have expert work relatively close by, you know, like in some cluster that's going to be able to like control, surveil, understand, you know, like repeat, refine their routines. And shoes are like one of the more interesting like uh, industries to look at that, you know, because the, that expert work that you're mentioning. Are kind of like the conditions, or you know, of possibility, or the epistemic culture for the labor exploitation. You know, you move a factory too far away from from these experts doing the curation and doing like uh, the work of development, and there's a strong chance like you're gonna have like a lot of trouble in like getting the, the things done and produced. You know.
2: Well, this is a, you know fantastic kind of a theoretical uh, foundation you have laid for us. So now I want to talk about uh, your empirical findings. There are um, three parts in total. Uh, each part centers around one primary location and a group of actors. So part of one focuses on the work for designers in the New York office. Part two, surprisingly for me, uh, turning to field models in Dongguan, China. And, then, um, and they can be the center of this globalization story. And lastly, part three travels to uh, South Brazil, looking at you know what happened to Brazil's shoe industry after US women's shoe production left. So we began with part one, which is titled From Designers' Point of View. My first impression of these two chapters was, there were so many pictures, I and mean, pictures, you know, the sneakers and boots from the website called uh, Global Streets. Pictures of the shoe samples and sketches of the design on the wall on a Moonboard. And then in later chapters, they'll you know, fit pictures of uh, uh, um, a few models of foot, right? <laughs> um, so how do you collect those pictures, and and what was the intention in including those, you know, visual representations? Because I know you as a very a theory guy, <laughs> so that's, I feel like the last not of your 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 approach, but it, it was very effective actually to see the pictures.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that that you thought that. Well, I was surprised too. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not someone who's a specialized in design or, or, anything. So, the the book was too a way of trying to honor and understanding sort of the expertise uh, behind developing and designing shoes. And and so part of what I was trying to do with that, and that's the part in which writing a book maybe is different than writing a paper or doing, you know, like a more positivistic version of social sciences, uh, it's to try to communicate, like, uh, the level of information that designers needed to assess, the level of information then the technicians needed to, like, assess, and how, Mm. you know, in moving the, the object that might become, like, a commercial shoe at the end, how do you keep the objects stable, but also you're making it into something new, right? And so, you know, for for people who are not that much into the industry, you know, like there's first there's like sketches and sketches are based on pre-existing information of what other competitors are doing, where people on the global street pictures that you were mentioning are wearing of... um high-end fashion, runaway shows, right? So it's a combination of, like, multiple market segments, um, information, and and so I thought that the only way to describe all those things were, like, visually, you know, like, a, so much that I have, like, 800 or more pictures. It's also, you know, like, I, my first, you know, like, most of my research earlier on was from my home country, so... If anything, I had to turn strange things that for me were very obvious, but here it was the opposite. Like, you know, like I, when I first went to China, I hadn't even gone there for vacation, a conference, anything, or, you know, like going on a shopping trip to Europe, which is something that designers do constantly. It's not my idea of going to a trip to Europe. We were just running around, rushing, entering and leaving places. And, you know, like designers who use me to take pictures, like they would pretend to pose in front of a windowscape from a shop. <laughs> and and actually, I was just taking the picture of, you know, the belt or the shoe or the ornament whatever it was behind them. Same thing on the street. You know, I would work with them in Paris. And they would be, like, shooting. And, and I was like, what are we doing? And they're like, oh, you know, we're taking pictures of people's shoes. Or <laughs> So I would just also walk around and, like, do things. And people would just think, oh, it's a tourist taking picture of random stuff. But we were actually, you know, like... And they would come back with, like, 300, 400 pictures per trip, plus all the, you know, what they call originals, all the objects that they would buy in order to get stimuli to then design. So
2: what... What do designers do? I mean, we know that they design, right? You earlier mentioned that you, you would have go on a trip with them to London, right, to take photos. So what do their kind of a day to day routine look like as a designer?
3: Yeah. I have to say I have a you know a newfound respect for all these women because they work, you know, like 60, 80 hours work week in different ways, partially because a lot of what they do it's living I would say three or four temporalities at the same time. On the one hand, you are collecting, amassing all this information. So sometimes, you know, like the, the everyday work at the at the at the company wasn't that r- revealing to me, you know, because they were just sitting in front of computers, sharing files, and maybe there would be like a small conversation here and there, um, but. You know, they are on the one hand, they're trying to think what they're going to be producing and sending to China soon. On the other hand, they're already checking on something that has been like fully developed. They done samples that have been like, you know, approved to be produced as actual shoes by the the own company or, you know, whoever is it that's buying the the, the products for you um so that's the the second sort of thing and then you know like in the middle they are already like sketching you know like for whatever comes right after you know like because in general you know they they used to have like two to maybe three or four sets of collections a year and now you know at least you have to have six and and so in doing that they're constant and so a lot of the work is okay we're starting to collect information to produce something, to sketch something that's going to be developed two, three months from now. Mm-hmm. We're currently sketching, you know, for something that immediately has to be sent to China. And then we are looking at things that were sent to China few, you know, like, and also not sent because the designers, as you know, have to travel to China, like, a bunch of times a year, usually, you know, again, four, six, eight, depending on what's your position. And part of what you're doing there is it's making sure that the things are impossible to formalize and turn into a paper, you know, like and translate them as instructions are are able to be performed uh, while there. So, you know, it's it's a lot of work, and and it's interesting because the the more some of these uh, design companies work with China. The more than the the work day, it's also dictated by that. Like you know, a lot of designers, especially people that are in charge of 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 uh, sort of production or you know like the interface between development and production from the U.S. to China, they will have to wake up super early in the U.S. to be able to see the emails of when like the you know the China office quote unquote closed, then they will work the whole day in New York looking at trend or going to like shopping or sketching or talking to um, you know like people that are doing sourcing of different materials. And then at night they will usually have to like respond all the queries of when the China office open about like, oh, we received this request for samples or this request for prototypes we have a question about this, we have a question about that. And so if they don't do that, then China lost like a whole day of work, right? Um, So yeah, it was interesting to see that. And then, you know, like the the way in which they, I I was also mesmerized, and I think it's an interesting thing for the sociology of creation or how they came up with with things, right? Like what were like the, I mean, you know, we can talk more about it if you want to, but I, I was fascinated for like the different you know, I wouldn't say tricks, but I would say procedures that they use in order to, you know, like generate 35 styles for a collection, you know, starting with, you know, something like 150, 200 sketches, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the process through which Doug went through,
0: you know. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you
1: by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: It also goes back to the idea of the global, right? Because usually we think about the global as kind of a you know um, uni right? And you travel from here to there. But for this group of designers, I feel like they are living um, uh, with different realities at the same time. They have to deal with like all the emails, like right? and and and, and then the time differences. But it, they are all kind of a united uh, under one object which is the shoe or a certain ideas of a shoe they're developing right you're talking about the, the societal creativity i want you to uh share a little bit more. you know how do these designers get their ideas um we talk about the, they probably go to london to take some photos and then they probably you look at the, the global streets the photos right what else like you know what how do they get their ideas
3: I mean, to me, what was most fascinating, and I and I call that in the book clattering, it's sort of the, you know, like, how is it that you end up with that ecology of taste? How is it that you end up with that syntax in which if you're putting 35 objects together, they kind of make sense relating to one another? And so, you know, again, part of it, like I said before, is this, you know, looking At other things and how they're doing. But interesting enough, a lot of ideas might not be just copying shoes. It might be that, you know, you saw a belt, you know, or a purse or like, you know, like maybe like a, like a part particular of those things. And you started thinking, how would that look like in a shoe? You know, and I think there is like, interesting enough, part of the training, a lot of the designers that I met have worked for other smaller companies before ended up making it to OM or other companies. They are like, you know, larger volume and they learn a lot of, you know, like sort of that, it's almost like a palimpsest, right? Like you're mm-hmm. constantly copying from a copy of a copy of a copy. So by the end, you know, even though they call originals these objects they buy and study, you know, it's, it's unclear where even the originality Come from, right? And so I think it's an interesting question of background and forward, foreground constantly, right? And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, let's buy a bounty of things, throw it on the table, you know, and mm-hmm. then it try, it start playing around with like putting them together. So if you have 35 things, what's going to become almost the background, right? Like the everyday things, the objects that are, if anything, actually have to be relatively bland and not call the attention. Versus what going to be like the anchors, right? Uh, and I think it's interesting because then you start seeing, you know, fun appears as a word, hot, cool, you know, like different words like that are ways of in looking at at that sea of stuff, you know, and and saying, okay, these are the things that we are making distinctive, um, and so that's why I thought it was interesting that a lot of the designers were not you know the first time in in you know like even they were young like it's not the first time working on shoes because there is something that we learn in general from craft studies, right like the practices of repetition end up resulting in difference right and and mm-hmm. but to me there's something again we, we were talking right before this question about the the multiple temporalities in which a designer has to live the shoes also, you know, and the and the ideas are also in the same in that way, right? Because mm-hmm. designers are looking at runway shows. You know, like it used to be that when you didn't have trend forecasting sites, you would always have like a freelancer, you know, like photographer, like hire that would like send you an email with all the new pictures, so you didn't have to go to a website. But now websites have that like the same afternoon or the day after. And so you can always be on the lookout for what's coming next, you know, because we know there's a, you know, sort of a ha- higher end market, you know, that again, in this market where it's like mid-tier market with good materials, but still mass produce. It's so you're looking sort of at the future, right? Then mm-hmm. they look at what I call the more expensive present because they tend to, you know, like both in those trips that you describe when they go to Italy, when they go to Paris, when they go to London... And using the trend forecasting sites, what they do is like they see what you know uh, sort of higher-end competitors are doing, you know, and, mm. and and decide what from it like works for their line. And then it's also a look at the past, which is it's you know, it's a past made out of like very cool fashionable people around the world, because you get to see the picture of how someone is, you know, like reusing a sneaker from 85 combined with maybe heels or combined with a particular, you know, like local style fabric. And so they get a lot of the pulse of what's out there in a way that, you know, again, it goes away from the computing algorithm synthesis. And is more like this collective game of, you know, thinking constantly what's cool and what is it. And that's, you know, why a lot of the designer, designing teams in the U.S. are in New York or in L.A., you know, Even if the companies are, you know, headquarters in Minnesota, Seattle, St. Louis, it doesn't matter. The design teams are on the coast because Hmm. partially, you know, what designers would do here in New York when I would go like in trips with them, you know, to relatively fancy stores is to also look on the street at what people are, you know, certain women are wearing and mm-hmm. And you know they would always be commenting on that, or they would run into competitors at the same shop and pretend they were not there you know to look at the same at the same shoes and so you know I think there's i can like probably like and I think the book tries to at attempt to do that like formalize what's the process, but I don't know exactly you know like how is it that you know a thing ends up exactly in that way, you know because sometimes it's like. Mm-hmm. Again, like collective sort of Zygast discourse about, let's say, a particular city or a particular style, and something enters into the sort of conversation, you know, in, in different places. Now, more in Instagram, when I did the, re- the research. It might it would be more fashion blogs and and things like that.
2: Well, but one theme is quite clear about criteria. I think you put it beautifully in the book. Something like it's never about a scarcity, right? It's always about a management of the excess, right? You start with a lot of things on the table, but they narrow down and gradually to one kind of a idea that that stands out, right? So I want to move on to the part two, uh, feet and fit. Um, in which you deviate from the heroic figure of designers and zoom into an unexpected group of girls in Chinese factory, um, They are the fit models uh, and their feet. So I remember you know, many years ago, I helped you transcribe some of the interviews you conducted with these models. So back then, I never thought that you would dedicate two chapters to these field models. So most listeners, I mean, could you know, probably never have noticed this group. Uh, even if we do, we are unlikely to imagine that these fit models can be the center of the story, right? So usually, you know, when we think about the story of globalization, we glorify the so-called elites with higher status and ignore those who play humble roles. But you argue that a female foot has the power to dictate what shoes are to be produced, Um why is that? And who are those fit models? You know, why they're so important?
3: To be honest, this surprised me as well. Like I, you know, I have heard about fit models. I saw when I was in the office in New York at first, I saw emails and they would say, you know, so-and-so is uh, trying on the food, the, sorry, the shoe or so-and-so is absent. So like you're seeing the shoe with someone else. And I was like, who cares? <laughs> like, why are they telling you that? And then they explained to me, oh, you know, like in order to produce a shoe or develop it, the most important thing is the construction, like the base. And in order for that to work, you need, you know, like uh, an actual model. You know, at first I thought, what, what, can you just do it with like wooden that has like, you know, all the measurements and they right. will work. And they were like, yeah, but the wood doesn't talk, you know, and and, <laughs> and so it was an interesting thing. and And that's why, I had the, the the same surprise as you did, which I thought the technicians would be sort of the, the stand-in for invisible labor, distributed knowledge, you know, like all the things, but it ends up being the fit models who like sort of better fit that role, you know, like uh, sort of like to explain, because the, you know, the most central part of how a shoe is made is like that, uh, opening or what they call a breaking of a construction of that base, which is a very expensive part of the process, Um, you know, and design and technicians want to be able to correct all the technical details, making sure the designs are actually possible. Um, But then feed models are central in, in development, you know, like in, in a particular way, it's like the, the food is supposed to have these 12 measurements, you know, that the industry uses, to produce as a base and then, you know, you scale up. So usually the, the feet of the feed model has to be six or seven, depending on what's the base size of your company, because mathematically it's so much easier to do that. And all the infrastructure it's built, you know, mm-hmm. because it's been built like in the forties and fifties when the size of shoes and, and the size of the female food was different, you know, like in a particular way, like changing that, changing the mathematics, the infrastructure of that would actually be very costly. And so then what happens, like if you're on a company, you know, you say we need a feed model. At first, you know, it's it tends to be someone whose only skill is the fact that they have a unique kind of foot. You know, they have this magical foot, Cinderella style, you know, that 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 can help you because it's really close to the twelve measurements. But the reality is, and that's why the book is called the perfect feed, because it shows you the whole infrastructure to caliber something you know, to pretend that it's perfect. Nobody has those 12 measurements. Exactly. Somebody's always going to have, you know, like a, a larger toe or a foot that pronates or, you know, like a arc that it's like, like flat or, you know, like the, the toe sweep, which is like, you know, the thing that you think for the shoes and how they are supposed to align is wrong. And so what happens is once they have that person, they start adapting most of the infrastructure. And that's why somebody said, Hey, this shoe is tried by someone else, because you know, designers, technicians, production managers, everybody gets used to the idea of stabilizing how you're producing and developing the prototype or the sample on this foot that is quote unquote perfect but actually is imperfect. <laughs> And mm-hmm. everybody knows sort of the deviation you know like and and it's interesting because this would be a noise in other kind of industries you know or in other metrological sort of affairs, if you wish, but here, knowing the separation and the distance is central you know and and like I said before at first and and there's an interesting tension because and we can talk more if you want to there's interesting tension between designers technicians and feed models about who has the knowledge about what's going on there, you know? Um, But, but to me, it was like this like nice idea of first doing like infrastructural inversion, right? Like looking at the whole infrastructure Mm -hmm. and looking at this interesting, it's like very subservient, you know, relatively unqualified, but with like a unique, almost charismatic skill character that at the same time becomes central you know because one of the central parts of the story of how to develop and produce shoes is where the samples get approved and mm. interesting enough the samples tend to get approved where the foot of the feed model is because that's what they're like and that's why designers travel to china to be literally at the feet of the food models and like be able to like work and correct all the small details you know And the other thing with the infrastructural inversion was, you know, we tend to think of globalization as this huge thing. And to me, it was kind of really fun to turn globalization on its head and say, what happens if we look at the most micro part of this, you know, which is not only just these women, but the food, you know, like a particular food of of those women and and how that anchors, you know, like the, the infrastructure at a global level, you know.
2: This is so fascinating because, like, you will never imagine um, the designers and the technicians actually have to work around the fit models, right? Uh, and before I read the book, I would, <laughs> I had no idea that actually our our feet actually are not identical. But <laughs> there's one person, uh, Linda, you mentioned in the book. So she's the the queen of a, of a fitting room, right? And she, according to other industry people, that is, she has perfect fit feet. So. Why Why does she have, you know, what does it mean and to have perfect feet, right? So why is she a queen? Tell us little, little more about Linda.
3: She's in China. She's Brazilian. Like, and, you know, which is also another part of the sort of the the story of these global industries where you have like these interesting, like, sort of like ethnic, you know, like networks that that you know like bound a particular profession. And so because a lot of the production for export for the US was done in Brazil before it went to China, a lot of Brazilians ended up like then eventually because they didn't want to, you know, be unemployed or have to move. Or like they just decided to try their luck in China. And, and I think, you know, I call her the queen of the feeding room because she was smart enough to sort of understand the power that she has as part of the infrastructure uh, uh-huh. to become a freelancer, you know, because she started saying, if, "If it's true, you know, like the, you know, technicians tend at first tend to complain, you know, like about feed models or they're just a foot, you know, they don't know how to give indications, they don't know how to talk, and then it's like the idea is like they need like a whole year of different collections to understand all the nuances and differences and like say more than hurts, no hurt, pinch doesn't pinch." And she's done it enough that she can understand that. So she actually saves companies a lot of money. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if the technician has like a perfect female foot, he would be able to actually like he wouldn't need a, a fit model. You know, like he would put it on himself and like notice all the different things. But like they need someone else. And that's what like the the interesting tensions about like gender power uh, and knowledge start. And and the other play with Cinderella is because regardless of whether it's in Brazil or in China, a lot of these women, you know, like come from usually the factory floor, you know, like they are not, you know, like uh, people who are designers or who train for anything in particular. It's just like someone did a casting at some point um, and well, and they had like a relatively perfect size six or seven. And so they, they're, you know, they become Cinderella and they get rescued from that. You know, they are one of the few people that are like get to cross the boundaries between the different roles that people play, but also like the male female sort of like boundary that you get to see in the industry so established. Um, and also the power that I was mentioning before, you know, like uh, like a lot of things in, when you start infrastructures, I got to understand how powerful the the feed model was when one of them resigned from one of the, you know, like trade companies I was studying and they were like, you know, like going, you know, like berserk, trying to figure out, okay, our whole infrastructure, you know, sometimes you have like, you know, feeding feed in other locales. So the maybe the factory one in China or in the sample room is the most important, but you have a replica you know meaning another human with a similar foot in new york uh and then if one resigns you have to like readapt that you have to readapt all the little corrections all the little measurements for that and so you know a lot of people especially early on are oblivious to this but someone like linda who's been in the industry for a long time was like Mm. i don't need to you know like to take shit from (laughs) from technicians like i have enough knowledge and also that means that They don't have to send the sample for approval to Europe or to the U.S. Like she's there. She tells you this works, doesn't work. The other thing and in that she's really unusual, her two feet are identical. And so that's usually something that doesn't happen, which means she can like fit with both feet, which usually is uh, not the case. And that has like some advantages. Yeah.
2: So a few days ago, I was reading uh, Leslie Chang's book Factory Girls. You know, also about girls in Dongguan, but uh, not necessarily in the shoe industry. Um, I feel like she actually argued against Karl Marx's kind of analysis, right? She said actually, lotless girls have uh, has a lot of agency, um, and they you know use the money they make from a factory to educate themselves to take some computer classes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some uh, English classes so that they can become better, right? But I feel like the story you're telling here, you know, the the feeder models, like most of Chinese feeder models, probably they don't recognize they have that much power, right? So hopefully your book, you know, (laughs) let them know that (laughs) they have a lot of power they have a lot of negotiation power as well in terms of salary. So finally, let's move on to the part three, the global in the rear view mirror. For me, this is another surprising turn. The last act of the story, a globalization story, really kind of glorious. But but you travel back to um, South Brazil and document its decline shoe industry after U.S. production left for China. It's kind of sad to read this part. It's like revisiting the ruins of of globalization. Uh, You wrote, and I quote, uh, what happens when things stop being sustained and start to unfold or have already unfolded? Or to be brutal, uh, collapsed. Um, this is very powerful. So, could you tell us a little bit more about the past and present of the Brazilians um, shoe industry? And what do you mean by globalization becomes undone?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, let me start by the by the second question. I think in general there's, there's been like a in studies of globalization this. Almost teleology, you know, where it's like the nothing in the world is going to escape the global linkages, you know, on the one hand, and also the extension of, you know, capitalism like into every kind of like aspect of everyday life, and and I was just thinking in in the you know like in the same way that globalization expands, it also can become undone, you know, like because you lose some of those linkages, you lose some of those connections. Uh, and you know, as we know, a lot of the this work of uh, creating anything involves an infrastructure that then becomes, you know, like a particular forms of the built environment that you have to like deal with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, I, I think like I also didn't expect to go to Brazil, like, I, but in China, one of the things that was fascinating is like most of the technicians were either Taiwanese or increasingly Brazilian. And, you know, that doesn't seem to be like a very regular form of migration. And mm-hmm. so I became every time more curious of why this happened. And at first I went to Brazil thinking that I would learn more about the, how they learn routines differently in Brazil than in Taiwan or in China. And then how they had to adapt themselves to do the technical work that they did. But what I found instead, you know, and I don't want to be too exaggerated, it's, you know, like Detroit for shoes. You know, like, I don't know if you've seen any of those beautiful uh, pictures that are like really sort of like ruin porn, they call them, right? Where you see all these factories, which are these monuments of modernity, you know, beautiful, almost like European train stations, cathedrals, but absolutely collapsed and destroyed. Um, and and so I was sort of interesting. With going there at the end of emphasizing that the worlds of creation and destruction, you know, that, that exist around the fantasies that sort of the shoe can awaken. And then in that space that used to be so lively, you know, like mm-hmm. the constant like ruins, people would like say, here there used to be this factory, here there used to be this, you know, like sample room, here is where like the workers were. And, you know, and people sometimes even talk about it in present. Tense, and then I would go to something and I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. There's nothing here, right? And sometimes it would just be rubble, things that like disappear, you know, like, so it was like almost like landscape of destruction, right? Like, and so that's what I thought of globalization and done, you know, because there is like this force, you know, the, that industry was a local industry that was subsidized heavily in the 60s and 70s, but the local, you know, like the Brazilian internal market wasn't enough for it. So they started exporting once they had the cluster. And it was almost like a you know bargain with the devil because once you do that, you start having to like scale up and then you know like make sure that you are able to produce shoes cheaply. And once the either the the local exchange you know like appreciates, then you have like a big issue because production is like, more expensive in dollars. Or you know the cluster become more stable people become unionizing or asking for more rights or asking for better salaries and like you know like that part starts disappearing um and so this place that was in the narrations that people would tell me you know like i will have all these stories about how people it was impossible to leave for factory for lunch or break at the same time because otherwise people with too many people coming out into the street so every 15 minutes you know like people would be stealing workers from other factories and things like that, or you couldn't drive through to a place that was empty and silent. You know, I would just walk and walk and walk and all I would, you know, from one place to another and it would be like empty quarters, sometimes recycled spaces where, you know, factories used to be, you can find kindergarten, churches, home appliances, stores, empty lots, you know, all kinds of abandoned structures. And so for me, you know, like that was like the, an interesting way of thinking of how these linkages are done, but also the directions, you know, like one of the mm-hmm. most dramatic examples of this is this company that used to produce leather to export from Brazil to Donghua in the mm-hmm. 90s and had an office in Taiwan. And now they're actually a warehouse to import synthetic materials and accessories from China to Noemburgo. you know? And, <laughs> and also the, the family, you know, like ethnic sort of like regional connection, the person who runs this is the grandson of a couple that was super central in the modernization of the industry in, in this area of Brazil, in Novo Hamburgo. Uh, so to me, it was fascinating. And then, you know, like in-betweenness of things, because the interesting thing now is some of the production is going to back to Brazil with all the problems that China has, because you have like some things in place, like the know-how, you know, and maybe they do production in the Northeast where where things are cheaper. You know, so to me it was it was sort of a fascinating way of in that scene that their projects. You know, like globalization is this sort of scale project, right? It's a project of mm-hmm. expanding, connecting things, but also sometimes there are linkages that like get cut off. You know, and and then it's interesting to see how in it's almost like place takes a revenge on globalization, you know, because there's all these fixed structures that there's very little that you can do with. You know, like in the case of the U.S., you get to see a lot of, you know, Baltimore, you know, like all the industrial cities have like transformed those areas into, you know, like consumption, leisure, like kind of services, you know, but but in other places, that hasn't been the case. and And I thought, you know, South Brazil certainly seems to be uh that case you know
2: yeah so i guess like you're arguing that uh, you know the, the linkage of a globalization they need to they need to kind of sust- kind of a continue um maintenance right so once it's broken sometimes it's for good and then um what we see is the ruins and the rebels of, of the globalization uh but at one lesson we can learn from brazil that uh, the will of global capitalism Never ceases to move forward. So I guess what happened to Brazil has already taken place in many parts of China as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about the present and the, and then the future of the Chinese shoe industry? Would have become the next Brazil? <laughs> you know, how are your? It's been I don't know uh, six seven years, and since you did the research, um, how are the uh, your informants coping with this kind of uh, shift? You feel a shift?
3: Yeah. No, there, there's, you know, there was already a shift when I was doing research. You know, like I remember giving a talk and some economists being pissed off at me, saying, "Why are you studying this when, like, you know, there's already on the way out?" Which is true. You know, like it was '90s to mid 2000s, where almost 80 percent of the leather f- shoes for the, you know, mid-tier women's market in the U.S. were exported from this area of China now it's when i stopped doing field work it was like 25 percent. so you can see already the reduction i think some of the interesting things is part of it is let me put it this way i think on the one hand you you get to see in china some industrial upgrading from you know cheaper things with less added value to uh to more expensive things so you, you know, I started noticing that in like factories moving every time further to the periphery of Donghua. You know, at the beginning, sample rooms, factories, everything were not. And so I think there's something where China, Brazil might be different in the scale of, you know, Donghua went from 80,000 inhabitants in 1980 to like, you know, between 11 and 14 million people in the metropolitan area by, you know, like the, the late 2010s. And so, there's something of the scale where if things get destroyed, maybe it doesn't matter. Something's going to come in. So that's that's one part of the story. Hmm. The other part of the story, it's, you know, the the industry, the sort of domestic industry historically actually had been in uh, Chengdu, not in Donghua. So in yeah. Donghua, it's where the Taiwanese entrepreneurs were able to convince, you know, partially because of their common Han ethnicity, sort of local officers, once the export zones open up to like put production there. And so for a long, long, long time, you know, the cheap labor was all Chinese, but the expert work was Taiwanese, like straight up. And so much that like until very recently, China didn't have like a technical school for shoemaking or accessory and so there was always a question of how you get people. Um, mm-hmm. And and one thing that I noticed on the trips and on this asking people how you're doing is people just move industries. You know, like I, I met people that used to do shoes and then they went to do candles for Victoria's Secrets, you know. <laughs> I knew people that were doing shoes and then they decided they were going to do slippers and like, you know, every day... Home clothing for women, you know, partially because of the all the subcontracting that you can have. And so people maybe didn't own a factory, but they were like just placing things. And I think for Taiwanese and Brazilian, the story is a little bit different because the story of inertia at infrastructure level tied to like a personal, familiar, biographical investment with the industry. The people that I met in China. That I maybe would email now or something. They're like, yeah, I don't, I do longer work in that, like straight up. And I was like, really? But if you ask a Brazilian, it will be, you know, I, I remember interviewing two or three Brazilians who left the industry, and it's like they were survivals or some of something, you know. It was really wow. like the the narratives of passion of the opera fans and like feeling sort of like an unrequited love for something that they used to love and now that doesn't do anything for them. And so, you know, there's, I would say there's something at the infrastructural level that is different. There's something of like the long-term investment in craft uh, mm-hmm. that makes it different. And then what I know from talking to people here that have more continuous access during the pandemic, um, it's something that I noticed in China already, which is Chinese capi- capitalists are already investing elsewhere. You know, so you have Chinese factories in Mexico, right? Like in close to Leon, which is like an area that historically has been like craft making for shoes, but for men. So now the US, so they don't have to deal with like transport and all the issues, you know, might go there. But it's interesting because they might go there to like Chinese owned factories. Same thing with Ethiopia. I was super surprised and I thought of going to Ethiopia until like, you know, I was told of what it would entail like to to make it there and be there but it's another place they have good relatively good leather close by like a small sort of history of local practices in generating shoes and you know as you know and and we know from C.K. Lee's book there's a lot of investment of China in, in Africa at large and so that was the thing that was fascinating it was like how to move production from China while keeping it Chinese, if you wish, you know. Currently, post-COVID, like I said, some factories are like in Mexico. Some others have like, you know, from the U.S. are subcontracting to Brazil again. But also, like I said before, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, like and an Ho Chi Minh City, it's becoming like a cluster of specialized services because of the, its history with sneakers, mm-hmm that is closer to the new places of production. It's closer to Philippines. It's closer to Myanmar. And so it's interesting now what I... S- oh, the answer to your question would be, I don't think you're going to see ruins in Dongwa. I think you're going to see constant reinvention for what's the next, you know, big thing that they do because they have, like, also the furniture industry there. They have, you know, they are in and They have, like, the the people doing like the small components for all the, you know, sort of electronics that we consume. And so for them, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, I think there's something different and it comes also with the fact that a lot of it is state capital, you know? And, and so there's something almost like I don't want to say playing like with monopoly money, which is what, as you know, Netflix has been accused of doing by everybody else in the, in the film industry, but there is something <laughs> yeah. relatively similar I think in the they are less invested in many different ways, and I didn't have more resources. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, you know you go to certain areas and and I thought it was fascinating that like the first sample room I went to that had bar racks and everything became a kindergarten and school also you know?
2: mm. so. <laughs> <laughs> so can I understand that you know for the uh, Brazilian technicians and film models, they are more kind of a attached to attached to this one specific cultural object, mm-hmm. but uh, for those uh, Chinese entrepreneurs and the workers, they are like you know it's fine. The glo- this globalization will the chain you know passes. That's totally fine. I can catch on another chain, mm-hmm. and there's so many other opportunities. The skills are very different in these two industries. I guess mm-hmm. um, that's amazing. Um, I lastly, I want to talk about uh, you know your methods. As most ethnographers will know that collecting data at this scale and pulling off such a global project is very challenging so i want you to share a little bit more about your methodological choices and especially access to studying up you know, studying the needs and the, the, uh, what kind of barriers have you encountered
3: i had the advantage of, of being close to someone in the industry early on and knowing through them a lot of other people in the in the industry people are suspicious of you if you are going to like a super higher app management level because nobody wants to show their cards. I mean, it's kind of, it's an industry that thrives on copying each other, poaching each other, designers, but then pretending Mm -hmm. that everything is original and unique, right? So there's that tension Mm -hmm. permanently, but then the people that are in charge of the everyday routines I'm actually very proud of it. And I feel like the more you tell them, I'm really interested in understanding how you work. We go way too much on the other side in ethnography of denouncing the impossibility of the encounter with another, of of extracting knowledge from them. A lot of people just want to be heard. They don't have anybody mm-hmm. that goes into their life and say, hey, can I talk to you for like three weeks in a row, two or three hours a day about your life? Mm-hmm. You know, most people are like, yeah, what do you mean my life? Well, you know, how you make shoes. And they're like, really? So I cannot tell you the level of excitement of some people driving me around in Brazil and in South China to show me, you know, like their secrets or, you know, this is how competitors do. Oh, you want to see like a real dump, you know, with ecological consequences uh, of all the constructions uh, for another company. And, And I think there's something of that also, I was a different person for different people. Some people thought of me as the partner of a designer and, you know, they knew me through that. And then maybe afterwards I said, Hey, I'm I'm in China because I'm working on this. Then I would say there's no sample, you know, that almost every ethnography works in this iterative character. But for me it was like really, you know, like expansive in a way that was hard to manage because always the question of like, Oh, now I have access to this. Do I want to do something with it? Do I want to do more? You know, do I need mm. to know where leather comes from? You know? And so there was a question of how to bound the field. You know, and, and if anything, I ended up writing the introduction to the book as a way of, before finishing, as a way of forcing myself to cut out, You know, to manage the excess, if you wish, also, that I had of, of, of information and, and potential avenues. For American designers, I was someone from the U.S., they knew my partner then, like they knew other of my friends then, like, so they were, you know, and they thought it was cute and funny and whatnot. For Brazilians and for Taiwanese, especially for Brazilians, I was this South American professor that made it in the US. So, (laughs) you know, when I went to Brazil, people would email me saying, hey, can you come to my sample room? I heard my friend so and so interview with you, which as you know, it's like a dream come true for like a qualitative scholar. You're like, really? Is that? And and so there was that part. Also, Southern Brazilians, for all kind of bad reasons, I would say, you know, they they consider themselves German, white. You know, the the state where they were at was separatist against the rest of Brazil for a long period of time. You know, they never succeeded, but they try. So Buenos Aires is their fantasy city. You know, Buenos Aires is their capital of Europe in the middle of South America. And so being Argentinian was an advantage, you know, and these are the things that when we say men, cis, heter, you know, all those categories, we, you know, we kind of pave over the fact that there are so many micro differences, you know, like in how you have access And, and with the Chinese that have much less access I said before bounding the field, you know, the the rhythms are much different than a regular fieldwork. Some days I will have like a full day of interviewing two people for three hours, going to the sample room and spending the whole day, then going with them to the factory, and then some other days everybody cancelled and I was alone, <laughs> like looking at like trying to listen to my thing and taking notes, you know, which it's very different from from the classic oh, I go once a week, or I go twice a week, it's the same spot, the same people.
2: Now that you, you write this book and then you are kind of an expert of a shoes, right? So, how do you see shoes differently these days?
3: Yeah. So, I would say, on the one hand, I can distinguish cheaper, um, cheaper materials and things like that. And so, I do have a 9 for design that is different from before. I do learn to, th- you know, have learned to think about the work of the many people in between. But I also, I think I relish on being an anti-specialist. So I think there's something very healthy in forgetting and letting letting go of caring. You know, like I haven't gone to the opera that much after the opera fanatic, and I only go here and there. It exhausted me. And I think there's something similar with shoes and fashion. Uh, and thinking also of scholarship as a gift, you know, we're trained to think of, What's my brand? What's my name? Where are my citation count is, you know, like and and things of the like. And but one of the things that you learn with shoes where authorship is higher is, you know, to learn about research differently, you know, as this distributed cognition thing where, you know, I'm not gonna say I invented anything. To me, it's like, you know, yeah, my my concepts are a combination of anthropology, STS, historians of global commodity chains. People like Fernando Dominguez Rubio or Harvey Moloch or Tranda Mukherjee, who's done stuff like what I do, but before I did, and, you know, and I cite all of them. And so there's something of incorporation by obliteration that I actually kind of enjoy, you know, like this idea of being already a part of the sea, if you wish, you know, like instead of like being like the wave that is like, I'm coming, I'm coming. It's like, well, <laughs> I've done this, you know, like, but, but at this point, you know, I, I don't know if I'm like a good sociology of fashion you know, like scholar, I think they're much better people than me and also who are invested in those questions and invested in those concepts. You know, I come and visit and I feel like similarly to this fieldwork, work, you know, I visited for 10 years, so I don't think people can say that I didn't, you know, that I took it lightly, uh, <laughs> but I am kind of ready to, to move on and, you know, stop thinking about shoes if that makes sense.
2: <laughs> We look forward to your next book, then. Congratulations again, Claudio, and thanks for everyone for tuning in. If you haven't, I highly recommend you buy a copy of this important book. Thank you, and goodbye.